Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're gonna to be talking about recognizing and managing triggers in challenging situations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have on our show today, Janet Fouts. She's gonna be talking about her book, Microdosed Mindfulness. Thank you, Maureen, for having me here. I think we're gonna have lots of fun together and this is gonna be a great chat. So I'm really looking forward to it. About me, let's see. I was running a digital marketing agency for the last 25 years. And about 15 years ago, my partner developed cancer and I became a caregiver, which kind of made me realize that what I was doing wasn't as meaningful as I thought it was. Yes, I was making money. Yes, I was successful, but it wasn't making me feel fulfilled. And I didn't think I was changing anything. I was just selling stuff. I thought, okay, I'm done with this company. I'm done with being a marketer. I'm going to do something that matters for people. And I started Nearly Mindful. Beautiful. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about the book, Microdose Mindfulness. Well, here's the thing. When I say to somebody, I teach mindfulness, they go, oh. And there's that level of touchy-feely woo-woo that they immediately go into. And then they say, I don't have time for that. That's hard. Do I have to meditate? I won't use the words I usually use with that because, you know, we're on air, but I think it's not true. We can be mindful very simply. And the reason the book is called Microdosed Mindfulness is really to help those people that think that mindfulness is hard, that it takes too much time, that you have to be a Buddhist, you have to go to an ashram, you have to do yoga, you have to sit just right. There's so many rules that put people off. But those of us who do practice mindfulness, and especially those of us who have been taught by some amazing thought leaders in the mindfulness space, they teach micro practices. Here's something small you can do. Here's something else small you can do. And as I learned that, I realized that more and more, it's easier for people to just absorb one tiny thing and once you microdose it and you get one small amount into your life and you see the impact it makes, wow. Then you're like, okay, I want more of this. I like that. I like the way it made me feel. So that's kind of how the book came together is because I really just wanted to make it something really approachable for people who think this stuff is so hard because it's not. It's just awareness. It's all it is. And I'm a big fan of mindfulness. I actually don't think it's woo-woo or weird. One of my neighbors is a mindfulness researcher. She talks about all of the quantitative analysis they've done in looking at clinical care ICU nurses and everything from that to trash collectors and working with kids. That is absolutely fundamental. And the reason I bring up the clinical care ICU nurses, there aren't many people in the world that have more demanding jobs right. than that group of people. And if they can make time to do it and see significant benefits, then many of us who are leading organizations can find time to do it because nobody dies on my watch, right? If they're dying, they don't come to me. It would be a bad decision. So to say that I can't find time for a microdose practice, yes, I'm busy. Yes, I work a lot of hours. That doesn't change the fact that I will be better during the hours I'm working if I'm doing this. Yes. Thank you for that. And you know what? It's lazy. 
They may not like to hear it, but it's lazy to say that you can't be mindful. And actually, if you really want to be productive, you need to learn to focus, right? You need to be aware. You need to have conversations in with uh -huh. you're actually listening without thinking about what you're going to say next. That's an example of mindfulness. Just listen. Because lots of times we'll have conversations where we're so busy thinking about what we're going to say, we never allow them to fully say what they want to say. And then we burst in with a really important thing we had to say that may be totally irrelevant to what they actually said because we weren't listening. And that's an example of being mindful. Who doesn't want that, especially on the other side? <laughs> well, and then when it's reciprocated, I like that people pay attention to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's one practice. You probably have a couple of favorite practices that you do continually. It's like picking your favorite child, I realize, but share as many as you'd like. <laughs> well, you know, the first one is to just remember to check in with ourselves. We have been taught to hide our emotions, that emotions are scary and bad and, oh, we shouldn't, especially in the workplace. Oh, what if we show fear? What if we show our true selves? You know, and I can't be a human potential facilitator if you don't show your human potential. It's right there. And you're ignoring it because you're not paying attention. So that's my lecture and that's my soapbox. And I'll get off that now because I really want to say, okay, how do you do that? When you're going into a meeting and you sit down at the table, even if it's across a Zoom table, give yourself the length of one breath to just check in and see how you feel. Are you anxious? Are you worried about what's going to happen? Are you excited? When we get in touch with how that feels, then we're much better able to respond to it. But if we go into a meeting feeling anticipation, then that might carry over into our voice, right? Our voices totally change. They go up in tone, we lean forward, and we're excited. But if we go in with fear or trepidation, we may lean back a little bit. We may be less likely to speak as quickly. We may not feel confident in the meeting. So we need to check in with ourselves and go, okay, I'm feeling really nervous about this. Take a breath. Recognize what it is in you that makes you the person to be in this meeting. Who are you? Why are you here? And when you really come into yourself, you can be more confident. You can be more focused because now you're paying attention. And it's the weirdest thing, but it's totally true, that people recognize when you're focused and grounded. I have people tell me that all the time. Oh, you're so calm all the time. Well, I am pretty calm, but it's taken practice. And it was that my mind was zinging all over the place all the time. And when I learned to focus, I realized that I was paying more attention. I heard what people said more. And I was able to respond better than I was when I wasn't listening and I just was waiting to speak. And I know we all did that. It isn't just me. So that's one really easy example. Just pay attention. Give yourself a moment to be present, to be there. That's mindfulness. Simple. So let's you and I do that right now. That's all it takes. So what are you feeling? I'm here. And I can see that you are as well. And I am so guilty of multitasking. So yeah, in fact, we heard a bing just a minute ago. 
And it was me realizing my outlook was turned on. So I turned it off so I wouldn't be tempted, as I often am, to just peek to see what's happening in my world. Something that happens, too, is that, you know, we're reading our email, we're doing whatever it is, surfing for cat videos on Facebook, and the phone rings. <laughs> we just reach over and pick up the phone and answer it. Hi. If we are distracted when we answer the phone, the person on the other end knows that. They know it instinctively. And if you're still answering your email, oh my God, they so know that. So really what we need to do is go, oh, the phone's ringing. Stop for the like of just an inhale. Doesn't have to be a, just an inhale. And then stop everything else to answer the phone. Give that person your full attention. And the phone call will be shorter. You'll be less distracted. They'll be less distracted. It'll be a better conversation because you're actually present for it. Same thing going into a conference room. When you go to put your hand on the door to go in, give yourself the length of a breath to just go, okay, I'm going into this meeting now. Put your phone down. Don't open your laptop so that it opens up in front of you and creates a wall between you and everybody else there because you're sending a message. And if you really want to hide in the meeting, don't go to the meeting. So how do you respond to what I assume is a large percentage of especially leaders who spend most of their day going from meeting to meeting and often don't even know why they're in the next meeting? Ugh. Not that they aren't smart and not that they're not good at their jobs. I'm not saying that at all. But it's just back to back. And the first part of the meeting is just grounding why are we here? I remember I enjoyed meeting with you last time. It felt really productive. That was two weeks ago. I've had 80 meetings since then. So why am I here with you? You know, we do meetings really badly. And it's a cultural thing that we have done for so long. We go into the meeting and first there's the, hey, how are you? And you know, all of that stuff. And then while you're doing the, hey, how are you? You're waiting for people to come because they know there's going to be, hey, how are you for 10 minutes in a one hour meeting. So nobody shows up for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. We need to schedule meetings more intelligently. For example, start the meeting at 105. End the meeting at 150. Oh my goodness, give me time for a restroom break. Time for a bathroom break. Time for water. Time to get yourself together before the next meeting. You know, I work with a lot of companies and, and they're telling me that they're on Zoom back to back. They barely turn it off in time to go to the next meeting, the next meeting, and the next meeting. So when you're organizing a meeting, who really needs to be there? People don't just need to put in FaceTime. If you're doing it on Zoom, allow people to turn off their video, but make it very, very clear. Answering your email now is not appropriate. Come in for when you need to be and get the heck out and let us get our work done. And that makes everybody else more productive because they are moving forward in a productive way. They know what they're supposed to do. They know they have limited time to do it. They know that they need to speak their truth in that meeting, and then they're going to get to go. But if you're just going to lock us up in meetings for hours for no particular reason, nobody's going to love you. And you're going to end up being that person whose meetings nobody wants to go to. People show up because they feel obliged, but they're not productive. Mm-hmm. And as I watch people on Zoom and as I watch them in person, often 
half of the room or more is not taking notes on the subject. No. They are clearly... They're watching cat videos. Or check an email. Yeah. And just uh, thinking of how many emails come in during a meeting gives me an, a sense of anxiety. And potentially they're doing other work Yeah, that's not related to the meeting. And if that's the case, they shouldn't be in the meeting because they're wasting everybody's focus. Because when you look around the room and you see 30 faces and they're all looking down at their desk or they're on their phone or whatever it is, then it's obvious that this does not matter to them. And you don't want to be that person that everybody's like, oh, well, this meeting doesn't matter to her. That's not the approach that you want to put forward. So figure out how to get your resting and face <laughs> smiley and paying attention and let people know that you're listening to them. Be in the room, even if it is a really boring meeting and you have to be there. Put your smile on your face, put your attentive face on and pay attention to what's going on. And you know what? When people who are listening are paying attention, uh -huh. the speaker is more concise. But if the speaker looks out and sees that everybody else is snoozing and on their phone, they start to ramble on because they're waiting for somebody to notice and pay attention. Next time you're on a Zoom meeting, and God knows we all will be, take a look and see if there's a difference when people are paying attention and when they're not as far as the speaker's attention goes. Interesting, because there are people that all of us know who just are more wordy. Yeah. Which equals less interesting. Yeah. And another thing we can do for smart meetings, first off, don't make people come who don't need to be there. But also looking around the room as the leader of a company or the leader of the meeting, we should be saying, you know, Sally, I haven't heard from you. What have you got to say about this? Because I'm actually an introvert. I'm less likely to speak up in a, well, okay, I am still likely to speak up in a meeting, but sometimes I'm less likely to speak up in a meeting. And if nobody calls on me, I may not get my word in edgewise. And then I might be resentful. And why was I sitting through this meeting? So as the leader of the meeting, see who is needing to be heard from. Because quite often those people have lots to say, but they just feel like they haven't had an opportunity. And when you do empower someone that way, they notice, and it matters. A lot of people don't love Zoom meetings. One of the things I really like about Zoom meetings is introverts, because I am as well, can use chat. So if the extroverted people are talking and talking and they are elevating the volume, I can quietly type something in chat and other people are having the conversation in chat who would not speak in the room because there's no oxygen left. Yes. So in that way, for introverts, it offers another opportunity to participate that matches our cadence. Mm -hmm. I was in a meeting as an observer, I guess, a month ago, and there were a bunch of women coders in the room, and all the rest of them were men. So the men were all speaking, and the women weren't speaking a lot, and then they tapped me into the chat. And they let me see what was going on in the chat for them. They had included me with a question. And the next thing I knew, I was included in this whole stream of them going, okay, let's solve this problem. They did solve the problem. They figured out a plan. And then they voted one of them up to say, okay, this is what we think you should do. This happens all the time in regular meetings. And it also happens in Zoom. So... You know, there's lots of ways to make this work in your favor, but 
at the end of the day, we need to have the confidence to step up and say, okay, I have something to say here. Way before we're having, you know, those really long back channel chats. So one of the things that happens a lot, you know, we just talked about introverts, is that people don't want to put their ideas out there because they don't want to be shot down. And so it's very easy for us to just go, okay, I'm just going to sit here. But when we become mindful and we're paying attention to the conversation, we are more aware of what's going on than a lot of the other people in the room. And we can take advantage of that. I keep a piece of paper when I'm in a meeting <laughs> to be able to write down who said something that I wanted to comment on. So then I can come back and mindfully say, Marie just said this, and I'd like to add to that. Can I jump in? All we have to do. People will say yes, or they'll shoot you down. And if they shoot you down, don't take that personally. It's not about you. It's about them. Because they weren't paying attention. They didn't probably didn't hear what Maureen had to say. They may not remember who Maureen is. This is a problem that we have a lot in tech. And, you know, I'm here in Silicon Valley, and there's a lot of duality here. So we will see that where leaders will defer to their friends rather than the people who really have the answers. And if you really have the answers and you want to succeed, you need to figure out how to insinuate yourself into the conversation in a way that is mindful and focused and very to the point. The more to the point, the better. If we kind of wander around and go, well, I might have something to say about that, it's not going to cut it. You got to jump in. One thing you said in there that I wanted to point out, because I think it's really important, especially in tech, because I also work a lot in tech, is amplifying the voices that may not be heard as well in the room. It's interesting, as I've slowed down sometimes, to really get to know people, the, the number of people really struggling has gone up dramatically. And that amplifying and listening and connecting and doing all of the mindfulness things you talk about in your book is really important for the entire team to be healthy and well. Yes. Because we are as well as our sickest member, right? Mm -hmm. Or as productive as our sickest member. And you know what? As leaders, we have a responsibility to ask people, how are you doing? And it doesn't have to be in a public Zoom meeting where all of our cohort is there. Periodically reach out to people by phone or by email. Actually, you know, on Zoom if you really have to. And just say, how are you? Because we are all in different levels of PTSD right now. There have been so many things going on. There's been so much trauma. So we really need to pay attention to who is working for us and make sure that we've hit everybody, not just our best friends. Make sure that you've reached out to the people who are speaking the least and just say, how are you doing? What can I do to help you? And, you know, as more and more people are looking for conscious business, people are looking for leaders who show that they have some empathy and compassion, the more we're going to have to adopt that. And I'm going to tell you, I just had a conversation with an uh, author of a new book, and he was telling me that it's old white guy syndrome. And he's an old white guy, but it really is about that system, you know, of top-down dictatorial leadership. 
that is not cutting it anymore. And it's not just the young kids. I'm a boomer. I totally believe that you need to pay more attention to your humans and really actually care about your team. Because if you want them to stick around, especially now when they can't even find people to work at Whole Foods, yeah, you need to pay more attention and be mindful of how people are feeling. And, you know, that's more of an emotional intelligence kind of thing than anything else. A colleague of mine recently kicked off a big project, really important community-based project. And one of the things he did was go to everyone on his team, about 20-some of them, so not just his direct reports, but I think two levels down, and asked what they needed to be at their best, what they needed from him, what they needed from the leadership team, what they needed from the organization. He was really interested in what he got back. And part of what he does brilliantly spends time with people. How are you doing? You, my humans, humans on my team. Because as leaders, my belief is how we lead is a reflection of who we are. Yes. Not just the skills we have. Yes, that's so true. You know, and yeah, skills are great. But if nobody likes you because you're a jerk, yeah, it's not cutting it. And it's really about having that caring for the team and remembering the fact that when we used to be in offices, we'd walk by somebody's cubicle and we'd go, oh, hey, cute picture of your dog. Small thing, but it means something to people. And so we really need that to be present, to be paying attention. I had an odd story this morning on the topic of showing care. So I had a meeting end early and I went to the garage to get something and I heard the trash people outside. So I opened the door and just went out to say, thank you. You gentlemen in this case happened to make my life much easier because, you know, stuff's always taken care of. And I've put crazy stuff out for these guys. At one point I put a chair out and they told me it was too big. So I got a chainsaw and sawed it in half. Ow. I think I have also scared my trash people. <laughs> So I'm not always emotionally intelligent, <laughs> lady with chainsaw. But out in the street, <laughs> I asked them if it was now small enough or they needed to, me to cut it up further. That wasn't today. So today I just went out to say thank you. And the gentleman said, you're an author, aren't you? How would you know that from my trash? And he said, no, one of the neighbors said this. I changed my route so I can be on your route because I'm an author and I wanted to talk to you. That's so awesome. I know. Stocky, but awesome. <laughs> so, you know, it's the things we don't know and the acts of kindness yes. that matter more than anyone will ever tell us. I don't know if he's been out there for years waiting for me to show up, but it was to me a very small act to just say thank you. It's a beautiful day. I can walk out. And it mattered to somebody. Yeah. And I'm making more of a practice of that. And the reason I didn't before is just too busy. I'm barely able to get through the day and go to the bathroom between Zoom calls like everybody else. So my life is better when I slow it down. And it also means I'm working longer hours. You know, there's a trade-off there. You know what? There's something about kindness that I think we overlook a lot. And that's that when we're kind to someone else, as you were, it makes them feel really good, but it also reflects on us and it makes us feel good. And we often neglect to remember that, that it's a two-way street and that every single drop of kindness expands because 
he's going to go and pick up somebody's trash who did it wrong because he feels good right now. And they'll do something else. You know, there's this waterfall effect. It's an amazing thing. And kindness takes so little from us. It can be walking by somebody on the sidewalk who's looking down and, and kind of down in the dumps, and you can simply smile. Or you can actually just lift your spirit just a little bit as you walk by them. And I know this is really woo-woo, but there is science behind it, that we actually feel the electrical energy of someone when we're within 10 feet. So we can actually change how a person feels by simply lifting our spirit just a little bit, holding ourselves a little bit stronger, putting a smile on our face. Even if they never see us, they'll actually feel that energy. And it's electrical energy. It's actually, I'll find the science one of these days, but I, I've read the paper <laughs> and it's fascinating to see that, you know, there's so many things. The fMRI studies that have been done, especially by Richie Davidson, around how people respond to mindfulness, how their brains change. There's that old story, you know, that neurons that wire together fire together. So, Another good example that I used to use all the time when I was in-house was you see this person coming towards you at your desk and you look up and go, oh, I really don't want to talk to him. <laughs> okay, you just transmitted that to him. How's he going to respond to you? Check yourself. Why do you feel this way? What thing happened. Okay, maybe he did something wrong. Maybe he said something stupid. Maybe he's just kind of a jerk, but he's got a good thing in his life too. He wants to be loved. He wants to be recognized. He wants people to be kind to him. And unless you can put that in your own little head, you're going to keep perpetuating this, here he comes again. But you don't have to. You can go, you know what? He bought somebody coffee the other day and that was really nice change your attitude, set something positive connected to this person, and you'll change the way you feel about them. Or you can go around being miserable and that's your fault. You know, one thing I have tried to do, and sometimes successfully, sometimes not, is if I'm meeting with someone that I've had challenges with, and we all have them, sure. is try to think of three positive things before the meeting because it's so easy to go in and think, oh my goodness, I just need to hold on for however long the meeting is, right? I just, I've got to get through this thing, the get through the day without dying kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. And to your point, our bodies are electrons and protons and neutrons vibrating. And the vibrational field is eight to 10 feet. One of the organizations that talks about this is HeartMath. Oh yeah. And they measure some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually going to ask our producer to jump in Dan Michalko, if he has information on this, because Dan was a physicist. Oh. So he may be able to share some information. So I realize to our guests, you have not met Dan before. He's usually behind the microphone. But I love it. Dan, can you add to the science of fields of energy? I haven't obviously had time to prepare, but based just on basic physics, yes. All matter is, is essentially compressed energy. That's ultimately what Einstein's famous equation of E equals MC squared means. Matter is energy. And if you release that energy, there's a lot there. Yes, we do have bioelectric fields. And we've known that for a long time. Everything from 
basic galvanic skin response up to a slight electrical aura. That's how sharks, one of the ways sharks can detect us is by that bioelectric field. Hmm. But you want to take it to the extreme, you've got the matrix, <laughs> which granted is sci-fi, but it's that same principle just exaggerated into a sci-fi format. So yeah, no matter how you look at it, whether it's a physics standpoint or an actual sharks in the wild standpoint, we're generating energy. How is it humans are subconsciously picking up on that? Hopefully not with the same reaction sharks have. <laughs> <laughs> food, food. Well, there are humans who are like sharks. You know, they'll pick up on that negative energy or they'll pick up on that vulnerability. And that's why so many of our leaders are afraid to be vulnerable. They don't want to show anybody any weakness. And that puts up a wall. Okay, it's like putting up your laptop in a conference room. Anything that they can do to create a wall to keep people from knowing who they really are. But what that does, and especially now, it limits their access to other humans. It makes them unapproachable. Maybe they think they want to be unapproachable because that's cool, you know, being the tough guy, but it's not. So finding ways to allow a little bit of vulnerability, especially now when we are all so vulnerable, to let people know, you know, I don't really think I'm up for this meeting right now. Can we table this? Can we talk about that later? One of the things we were going to talk about was triggers, and, and I really want people to understand what a trigger is, which is when somebody says to me something that sets me off. And it could be a positive trigger or it could be a negative trigger. So, you know, it could be something that makes me smile. That's a trigger too. But it could also be interrupting me when I'm just about to say something that to me is crucial. Maybe it isn't to them, but to me it's crucial. And we need to be able to self-manage. And that's one of the ways that mindfulness helps us. When Susie interrupts me and cuts me off right before I say my really important thing, whatever it was, I can just pause for a moment. The pause is so important in situations like that because if you stop talking, let them do their little thing, keep stop talking, and then say what I was going to say was, or, you know, whatever. But it's really about not letting that kind of bullying behavior go on and recognizing your trigger, and rather than allowing the trigger to set off, you can say, oh, there's that trigger. I recognize that's a trigger, and I have a plan on how to handle this trigger. And then suddenly the trigger doesn't go off. But if we allow the trigger to build, that's when our amygdala sets off, our blood fills with cortisol, we start to get angry, and that's very hard to stop. So you don't want that train to stop, but if you take a breath, especially a breath, if you can do it and you're not in front of somebody, you can take a long exhale and that stimulates the vagus nerve and that can stimulate your parasympathetic system and calm your body. So even if you have to do it quietly, pause, take a breath, wait for him to shut up, and then say what you're going to say. And it's amazing how it can change the atmosphere in the room and the relationship with the other person. You're not responding to the trigger. You're not letting them trigger you. And you're building that confidence that we talked about earlier. It is demonstrable confidence, even if you don't have it at that moment. One of the things that seems so important is as leaders of a certain age, 
we were taught that you work at work, you have friends at home, you're not vulnerable, especially women in the workforce. And I grew up wearing bow ties. You weren't seen at all. Somebody asked me if I was a burn victim one day because they had never seen my neck. We grow up being taught that you're not vulnerable, even in the slightest of ways. And now the rules have changed and we're supposed to be vulnerable. And I think a lot of people just not sure they believe it and don't feel comfortable. If I'm undoing 30 years of messaging about what's appropriate, I'm not sure I'm going to buy it that now I'm supposed to be warm and friendly when my entire career has been built on being efficient and effective. Totally get it. And we have Brene Brown to blame for that. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Can you think of anybody more confident than Brene Brown? I mean, really, she's an incredibly strong, I'm going to do what I'm going to do kind of woman, but she's focused around vulnerability. So it's really important that we try it. Start small. Start with people that, you know, you're not going to feel alienated by to be vulnerable with. And it is hard because, you know, we've had 30 years of learning how to be this way. Look, I worked in the horse industry, then I worked in the restaurant industry, and then I worked in tech. All of those are male-dominated societies, and I will be the first to tell you that I stepped up the same way everybody else my age did. I got as tough as the guys, and none of them would stand up to me because I would just back them into a corner. And gosh, now I'm all warm and fuzzy, but I can still do it if I have to. I think that's really important. And I grew up in consulting. So I was in utilities and power companies and steel companies and women who were successful, which was few, maybe mostly by choice that they were smarter than I was, didn't go into those settings and stay unless they were able to be equally as tough. Yeah. It's sad because what's happened to, I I don't know how to classify this, those women is that they have learned to put down other women because that's the way the patriarchy works. And it doesn't have to be. And so what we need now is women who are willing to stand up and say, no, this is not okay. I'm going to be kind and compassionate. I'm going to allow myself to be a little vulnerable and I'm not going to buy into this old school mentality that's going by the wayside. You know, Janet, you and I are modeling that right now. You know, we've both just said we've had the tough upbringing. And if we were in a room full of high energy testosterone dudes, we could do it. Yeah. Probably in our sleep could do it. And we're making a different choice. And we're making space for young women and older women, us and older, to make different choices. And now we've got the range of options. You know, before it was just tough. Now it's in one setting, I can be tough. I can still get the chainsaw out. And in the other setting, I can be vulnerable and kind. And you know what? This is why mindfulness is starting to be seen a lot more in leadership and a lot more in male leadership. I'm encountering people all the time who are men working in leadership and they're not buying into that. And some of them are our age. It's really important that we pay attention to the fact that as women and people of color, we may say, I'm acting this way 
but I'm not seeing it in my male counterparts. And that's not really as true as we think it is. And a lot of our male counterparts as leaders are actually much more soft and emotionally intelligent than we allow them to be because we put them in those boxes. We set those roles for them and we expect them to stand up and do it. And if we can be vulnerable enough to allow them to show their true selves, it can be quite surprising. But we tend to not do that because we put everybody in a box. And it's easier that way. Give me an experiment I can try with one of my male colleagues that seems insensitive. I'm going to go try this tomorrow morning because I'm meeting with two gentlemen who are very good men, but probably not high on the sensitivity scale. So what can I do? Well, I will say it's better when you have one of them alone than when you have a group of men who are all in that kind of, I'm going to be tough no matter what kind of mentality. But you can very easily say, you know, how have you been? What's been going on with you? How do you feel about whatever? You may not go to the mask thing. You may not go to politics, but you can find something. How are your kids? What are you going to do about taking some time for yourself? I see that you seem really tired right now. What's going on with you? Is there anything I can do to help you? And, you know, that's a really vulnerable thing for us to say because we might get slapped down. That may happen. But when we allow ourselves to open to other people, they open to us. One of them just recently got an award and I was going to hang it in his lobby. So we're going to start with how do we hang your award? Because it's interesting that not comfortable with that recognition. So maybe that's the experiment is I really want to acknowledge your success. I love that. And really acknowledging that success. You know, I just wanted you to know that I think that's really cool. And I'm so proud of you. And even if you feel like I'm so proud of you is maybe too much, think of something else you can say that's basically telling them that you support them and that you honor them and that what they have done is important and matters. We all want our egos massaged. It's a basic human trait that we want to be acknowledged. And a lot of times we don't. Forgive me for saying this, but it isn't about the award. It's about what they did. And putting your focus on that mm. and then hanging the award. <laughs> good, good call out that I'll ask him what he did to earn this acknowledgement. Because yeah. the award doesn't exactly spell out. Yeah, I, I would love to hear the story behind this. Let him tell the story. Hold your breath while they tell the story. I've been studying this thing called humble inquiry which is really interesting because it's kind of like a nonviolent communication kind of style, but it's really about how we ask things. And I'm not putting you on the spot, but you gave me such an opening I can't resist. Mm -hmm. One time I got a, a speaking gig and it was in Malaysia and it was amazing and wonderful. And I got back and a really good friend said, how did you get that gig? And they didn't say it that way. He said, how did you get that gig? But I heard it as, how did you get that gig? So... It's very important how we ask people things, saying, wow, that's, that's a really interesting reward. I'd love to hear the story behind it is much better than how did you get that gig? How'd you get that? <laughs> <laughs> I have learned that sentence starters matter a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
And I learned this actually from a good friend that I did this to all the time. And, and it was like the yes, but, yes, but. Mm -hmm. And what I meant to say is I'm building on your idea. I'm really excited. And what I typically did is belittled rather than build on. Totally unintentionally. But that wasn't how he felt. Right. He felt like, how did you get that gig? Yeah. To be able to say, that's a brilliant idea, or I really respect you, but what you just said, I don't get it. Mm -hmm. Help me understand because you're seeing something I'm not rather than really yet again. What are you talking about? Yeah. That's what we think. Most of us hopefully don't say that. But yeah. just the opener of I respect you and I want to hear more mm -hmm. sounds very different. Yeah. It's something my improv friends have taught me instead of yes, but is yes, and, you know, and that helps us to agree with them and tell them they're wrong anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least make a suggestion. Without sounding like we're... Yeah. Because as you said earlier, you know, we've both been trained to be a little condescending. And it's something that leaders think they need to be until they get to be leaders. And then they realize how that doesn't really help and how it alienates them from the people they lead. I had the opportunity to listen to the former commandant of the Marine Corps. During COVID, he was speaking to a group of healthcare workers, and the conversation was about how do we help our people? And he equated it to people in being in battle. So our healthcare workers, any, anywhere from janitorial service to people pushing sick folks down the hallways to docs and nurses, are all exposed to this, especially early in the pandemic when we knew less, and now they're just working crazy hours that what we need to demonstrate most is empathy. These folks are putting their lives on the line, in some cases, for slightly over minimum wage. Now, Doc's making more. But either way, they're going home to their families. They're quarantining at home. They're not spending time with their loved ones. What I didn't expect, and maybe it's because I don't know enough about the Marine Corps, I think of all the boot camp movies, not this situation, but how important empathy is across the board mm -hmm. for everyone, no matter how much money they make, no matter how accomplished they are as a leader, or how junior they are coming into the organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of the issues that we have right now with the police force is empathy, lack of empathy on both sides. You know, when we're seeing people push against the police just because they feel like they're being unfair. And when the police get really reactive, you know, when we talk about triggers, who's more easily triggered than somebody who is maybe going into a domestic violence situation, maybe going into a neighborhood that they know is going to be challenging? Their adrenaline is so high that it's very, very hard for them to just get centered and focused before they react to things. And they become very reactive, and then things escalate. And, you know, I know several people who are working with police forces, working with the military, and working with veterans. And all of them are trying to teach people how to de-escalate before things get out of control. And it's something that can be learned, but there has to be training. And, you know, we don't pay people enough to really be able to get that training on their own. So we need to be able to help them get that training because that reactivity is toxic. It's toxic to them. It's toxic to the people they interact with. 
I've been invited to do some training with people who are tracing for COVID. And so, you know, they're calling families and saying, I know that, you know, you've been exposed and we want to talk to you about that. And they're getting all ends of the spectrum. It could be all masks are bad. This is an evil plot. There's all of the things that people know about that. But they're also getting families that are completely distraught and unable to handle even talking about it. And someone they love may have been sick. And so these people are going through a lot of the same thing that the medical teams are in that it's very traumatic. And we can't absorb that trauma. That's where compassion comes in. Compassion allows us to step back. And yes, we can have that empathy and relate to those people, but we can step back and get a little perspective so that we don't take it home with us after everything. So it's a really interesting process. And then that's kind of what I'm going to be working with them about is really understanding how to empathize and then use your compassion to help them and help yourself as well. We are coming to the end, and I would love to have you share a practice that helps people either build empathy or compassion. Yeah. So the easiest way to build empathy in ourselves is to recognize ourselves in every other person in the world. We all have the same needs. We want to be loved. We want to be cared for. We want to be heard. We want to be respected. And when we look at another person, we need to remember that we can see ourselves in them. That allows us to get in their shoes with compassion. It allows us to see what's happening with them and find a way that we can take action because compassion is all about action. And that action could just simply be saying, I'm sorry, I really see that you're struggling. You don't have to like lift them up off the ground and carry them wherever. You don't have to save the planet. Sometimes all we want is to be heard, to be recognized. And when we are recognized, it makes us feel better. And that's compassion, just recognizing. So I, I know a lot of people think that that means you have to, you know, save the whales. And I get that. I want to save the whales too. But I really recognize that they're suffering. And when we recognize someone else's suffering, it, it makes a difference for both of us. It circles back to what you had talked about, just being heard, yes. being seen and heard for the reality that I'm experiencing. Yes. And sometimes it, no action required. That is the action. Yes. Respect. Uh -huh. We highly underrate respect with our homeless. If we turn our face away and pretend they're not there, mm. that energy is transmitted. But they're humans just like us. Thank you, Janet. This has been... a really fun conversation. Can you tell our listeners where they would find you, where they would find your books, the name of your most recent book again? You can find me at com, And on the front page, you'll find a link to my books. You'll find ways to work with me. You'll find a link to When Life Hits the Fan and also a way to sign up for the newsletter to get microdosed mindfulness when it comes out in December. Thank you. This has been just a lovely conversation. Thank you, Marie. And Dan, our producer, thank you for jumping in with your physics information. Yay, Dan. And we'll have more of Dan coming up in the future, too. And to our listeners, most of all, you are why we do this. 
So thank you for spending time with us and making the contribution that you are making to our world. We're in such a difficult time. And as Janet pointed out, some days that just the act of kindness, a nice word, a smile, a look directly in someone's eyes, and on the other end of the spectrum, the brilliant work that so many people are doing across the range of tasks that get done, whether it's a person who is keeping my neighborhood clean all the way to the surgeons that are helping COVID patients, to people running our government. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you for listening. Please like us, share us, and join us again. Mm -hmm.